0: Open your Bible with me to Exodus chapter 7. Exodus chapter 7. On October the 31st, 1517, 504 years ago today, the clanging sound of a courageous hammer was heard as it struck the castle church door in Wittenberg, Germany. The nail that sunk into that wood held a document that we call the 95 Thesis, which contained 95 different ways that Martin Luther believed that the church in Rome had veered off course. He believed they were guilty of keeping the people of God in spiritual bondage through man-made rules and through religious abuse. And after coming to understand it himself, he wanted the people to understand the liberating power of the gospel of Jesus Christ and live in its freedom. There had already been a growing restlessness in the hearts of many, but it was this German monk named Luther who God would use to give voice to the people as he stood boldly to the power of Rome. And since that historic morning 504 years ago today, Christians have celebrated October 31st as Reformation Day. Happy Reformation Day. From the ground of this new Revo- Reformation, countless hymns would spring up. But rising above them all, a mighty fortress is our God, which we sang earlier, would become known as the battle hymn of the Reformation. Leland Ryken, a scholar from Wheaton College, points out that if we hold up the words of a mighty fortress is our God to Luther's life... Everything falls into place, including a sense of heightened spiritual conflict, the presence of a life-or-death battle, the reality of living in danger even to the point of possible martyrdom, and a sense of confidence that springs from the conviction of belonging to God's cause. So both Luther's hymn and his life contain a certain All or nothing vigor from start to finish. But even though Luther led this movement, which would grow to become known as the Protestant Reformation, there were many times that his heart would sink into despair, wondering if his prayer and his labors would in the end prove successful. And when that happened, he would gather with his friend Philip Melanchthon and sing this well-worn tune that we now know, inspired by Psalm 46. As they reminded one another that though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. That's the doctrine of concurrence, that God's word will do the work and he has chosen in his wisdom to work through his people. I've been thinking a lot about Martin Luther this week, as I've been looking at the life of Moses. Where we are in the Exodus story is also a moment of heightened spiritual conflict, like Ryken said, as Moses goes before the very one who's holding the people of God in a physical bondage. There is the presence of a life or death battle that Moses is walking into, yet we will notice Something that we have not truly seen before, Moses operating with a sense of confidence that springs from the conviction that he belonged to God's cause. There's a certain all or nothingness that energizes this story from beginning to end. He's all in. In this plot advancing scene of Exodus 7, 1 through 13, we finally arrive at the moment we've all been waiting for. Moses, the prophet of God, standing face to face with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Now we've seen this before, but this time he will boldly speak God's word and faithfully perform God's first sign. And as this conversation unfolds, we'll see a preview of what is to come as Moses commands Pharaoh, let my people go, in order that they might serve and worship the Lord alone. So like the falling leaves uh, tell us, give us a sign that a change in the weather is coming, Uh, this this passage points to a change that we will soon see God bring about in the lives of His chosen people so that they and the nations of the world might know that He is the God who rules and reigns above all earthly powers. We'll divide our text into two sections. First, the proclamation of God's word, verses 1 through 7, and then the demonstration of God's power, verses 8 through 13. The proclamation of God's word and the demonstration of his power. Let me invite you, if you would, to stand your feet once more for the reading of God's holy and inerrant word, though written long ago, speaks to us right now. I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch up my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Would you be seated? The first way that we come to know that God's authority is above all earthly powers is through the proclamation of God's word. God has spoken to us as his people. The God of self-disclosure has made himself known as one who rules and reigns above all things. As we left off last week, we witnessed Moses once again questioning God's purpose and plan for his life and for the people of Israel. Instead of answering Moses directly, God does a very God thing here. He doesn't answer his question. He just begins speaking truth back to Moses. He wants the truth to be louder than his questions. God's response can be heard in a sort of four-part harmony. There are three I will statements disclosing what God will do. Last week, we looked at seven of the I will statements of God. Here, there are three more, followed by one note that amplifies the ultimate plan of God, His glory among the nations. The first statement we hear is that God will make Moses like God to Pharaoh. Since the Egyptians considered the Pharaohs to be incarnate gods, what Yahweh does is place Moses on equal footing with Pharaoh, both in their upcoming conversation and the ensuing battle that will come. This act of God actually confronts Pharaoh altogether, showing that he's not a God by introducing the true God. Now, this in no way suggests that Moses becomes God. That's not what's happening here, that's impossible what's happening is to Pharaoh, from Pharaoh's perception, it will be as if Moses is God. He will speak as God does, operating with his divine authority. Um, He will even speak through a prophet like God does. In this case, it will be his brother Aaron. And as a result of this showdown that is about to go down, that was free. This ancient ruler wearing a snaky crown is rivaled by this shepherd of Israel whose life was endangered from the beginning, who came riding a donkey, who was rejected by his own people. He is the seed of the woman who has been chosen as the redeemer of God's chosen people. So God will make Moses like Pharaoh. Pharaoh. Or like God to Pharaoh. Second, we hear that God will harden Pharaoh's heart. Verse 3 tells us that even though God will speak through Moses, Pharaoh will not listen. Because God will harden his heart. And we heard that language used first back in 421. And here it's a different word for harden that is used. Meaning, to be difficult or stubborn. Those are great adjectives for Pharaoh. Difficult and stubborn. Back in Exodus 1.14, the first Pharaoh's oppressive cruelty to the Israelites was described as hard. The new Pharaoh has made their burdens even harder. And It's so now using that same language, God will harden the heart of the king of Egypt. The hardening of the heart of Pharaoh is so closely linked with the revelation of God throughout the Exodus narrative... How Pharaoh responds to God's word is by hardening his heart. And of course, God is the great cause in hardening it even further. So though Moses has been called to proclaim God's word because of Pharaoh's hard-heartedness, he will not listen. Third, we see that God will lay his hand on Egypt. Now, oftentimes in the Old Testament, uh, speaks of God's power being shown. It uses anthropomorphic language, the hand of God. The arm of God, the strong arm of God, and so in this use, God's not going to lay his hand on Egypt in a blessing, but in great acts of judgment. Verses 4 and 5 taken together uh, explain that these are not simply disconnected signs to demonstrate God's power, but each one is an intentional, measured judgment on the Egyptians, it's an expression of justice on God's enemies as at the same time he brings salvation to his people. And then notice there's an even wider purpose that God has as he stretches out his hand to save his people and judge his enemies. That leads to the final movement of God's answer. The fourth thing we notice, the Egyptians will know that I am God. This is the key verse of the passage. It provides the theological emphasis of what God is doing in these verses and in these acts. Ultimately, he will bring salvation to his people and judgment to his enemies so that his great name would be known. We, we saw earlier in chapter 6, verse 7, well, actually, before we even get there, let's go all the way back to the beginning of chapter 5 when Pharaoh says, who is Yahweh? Yahweh. Really, this whole Exodus narrative is the answer to that question, so that Pharaoh, the Israelites, the Egyptians, and you and I would know exactly who God is. In chapter 6, verse 7, the Lord says to His chosen people, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Here in 7.5, it's the Egyptians that are the audience of this word. The Egyptians will know that he is the Lord. And by the time we get to the end of the plagues, even some of those Egyptians, the confessed enemies of God, will be numbered with his people and saved from his judgment. But we're not there yet. There is an important phrase in this passage that I don't want us to overlook. Verse 6 tells us that Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded them. Just as the Lord commanded them. You know, the first time they tried this, there was some editing of God's message. But here and throughout the Exodus narrative, these brothers walk in obedience to the voice of the Lord. And verse 7 tells us now Moses was 80 years old. Aaron is now 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. And as we hear mention of their ages, we are reminded how much time has passed in Moses' life. 80 years. We even think about the years that the people of God have now been suffering. 400 years they've been afflicted in Egypt. 80 years is what it took for God to prepare Moses to begin his life's work. At 40, Moses tried to speak for God to bring justice to his people. At 80, he was ready to lead the good work. So you saints who are senior saints, the Lord is not done with you. Look to Moses and see, at age 80, still getting started. The best years could still be ahead. And everybody under 40 said, amen. amen. You hear that, senior saints? No, literally, can you hear it? We can, we can do it again. Yeah. <laughs> um, in this extended section we turn to next, from chapter 7 all the way to 13, Moses is found saying and doing only what he's instructed to say and to do. Let's recognize that the Moses we were growing so irritated with last week in his apathy and his ignorance, he is growing. He's growing spiritually. Moses is finally ready to stand before Pharaoh, not as the reluctant messenger, but as the chosen prophet. There are two applications that I want to draw from these opening verses. The first is to recognize spiritual growth. I've prayed for you this week that we would be a people who would see spiritual growth in our lives. That As we stand before the spiritual mirror, we wouldn't just notice the things that are wrong with us, the many areas that we lack, but that we might see us how God sees us. If you're in Christ, God sees you through the completed work of Jesus. Not your insufficiencies. Not your greatest sins of this week. But he sees the work of Christ. We need eyes to see that. We've, We've watched Moses grow. He started as this vulnerable infant and then to an immature man. Now he's a bold leader. God has done this work in him, and it took time. Moses had to be broken before he could be used. So let me encourage us to look for spiritual growth in our lives. Husbands, look for spiritual growth in your wife. Parents, look for spiritual growth in your children. Exercise the same kind of patience that the Lord has had with you to them, to all of those around you. And as we see growth... Let's speak it. Let's encourage one another in the ways that we see Christ at work. Can you imagine? What church has too much of that? Too much encouragement, tracking and tracing and praising God for the evidences of His grace at work among the people. That church doesn't exist. Let's try to be that church that does it too much. And let's start today. So who is one person that you can encourage today? One person that you can say, I see God at work in your life. You're not who you were. God has changed you, and I want to just encourage you in that. The second application we find in this text is by drawing the comparison that Moses had been commissioned to a specific proclamation of God's word, and we too have been commissioned to proclaim God's word. The word of God has been entrusted to us. But we've not been given the responsibility to try to change people's hearts, but just to be faithful in proclaiming God's words. It's Martin Luther who is very helpful to us, bringing a comfort and encouragement to us about how to boldly proclaim the word of God while at the same time trusting the results to him. This is what Luther writes. We are bidden to preach, but we are not bidden to justify people and make them pious. This thought should comfort all preachers comforts this preacher it should comfort all christians only the word of god is entrusted to moses not the responsibility of making pharaoh soft or hard by preaching the word is entrusted to him this is god's will and the word he is to proclaim even though no one may want to listen to him but says god go on moses preach Go on, Moses, preach. Some hearts will be hardened by the message of the gospel. Some ears will be closed to it. But you and I have been sent in the very authority of Christ to proclaim the good news of Christ to the poor and the weak and the outcast and the needy. And so let's proclaim God's word in his gospel with humility and boldness and love and patience and courage. And then let's trust the Lord for the results. He is the God who saves. This is what his word says. And we proclaim that together as a church. So let each of us who have come to know the Lord from 8 to 83. then let us proclaim the good news of God. The second way that we know God's authority is above all is because of the demonstration of God's power. Where before Moses and Aaron confronted Pharaoh with God's words, now they will show him God's power. So this account of two snaky staffs is not a plague in itself. This is a prologue to the plagues that follow. I was trying to think of a good simile to what we find in this prologue. Here's what I came up with. This sign is when an artist releases a single off of an upcoming album to give people a taste of what the record holds in the future. How many of you are singing Adele's Easy on Me around your house? Well, I am, so judge me if you must. And so Adele releases a single that points to her new album that will come out sometime in the future. What we have here in the sign of the serpent is a little single that God releases as a sign, a foretaste of what the rest of the story holds. Let's look at it. Verse 8 tells us that the Lord prepared his men in advance for the moment that Pharaoh asks for a sign from God. God had predestined that Pharaoh would demand this miracle as proof over Moses, of Moses' power. When the time comes, Aaron's instructed to throw the staff of God on the ground and it will become a serpent. Now verse 10 tells us that Moses and Aaron did exactly as the Lord commanded. Evidence of his grace. He did exactly as the Lord commanded. And so when Pharaoh asked, Aaron throws the staff of God on the ground and it becomes a giant sea serpent. Well, where did that word come from? Sea serpent. Did you get lost there? No, this is in the text. Just stick with me for a minute, guys. This is amazing. Could you hear my inflection while reading it? This is remarkable stuff. Okay, so the Hebrew word here is not the same word used to describe that common but supernatural snake back in the desert. This is a different word. There was a was a specific word. I won't get into the Hebrew. This time, the word is used. It's the same one we read in Genesis one twenty-one to describe. Great sea creatures. This word can be used to designate giant serpents, monsters of the deep. If you're a boy under the age of 40, listen up. (laughs) This is how the Septuagint, one of the oldest translations of the Bible, described this word. You know what it is? Dragon. What? This is a massive snake. Who knows? Who knows what kind of serpent this is, slithering on the floor of Pharaoh's palace. That's what's happening here. And so surprisingly, Pharaoh's own wise men and sorcerers and magicians, they replicate the miracle that God performs, turning their own staff into a serpent. Now, there are documents from ancient Egyptian history that record these kinds of magicians making a wax alligator and dipping it in the Nile River. And when they dipped it in the Nile, it became a real alligator. And then as they grabbed the tail of the alligator, like we saw Moses grab the tail of the snake and back in the desert, it turned back into wax and came up um, in, the, in the state that it was in. Well, perhaps that account is all just an elaborate prank, but we have no reason to think that this story is just some sort of sleight of hand. Or some sort of magic trick. The text seems to say that these men, using this secret magic, are also able to perform the act. Possibly empowered by that great serpent of old, Satan himself. Next week, we'll see them try to replicate a few of God's first miracles. They give it a shot on the first three, and then they are done. But you'll have to come back next week for that. Okay, so there are now two serpents in the room when all of a sudden, the snake of God swallows the snake of the Egyptians. Did you hear that? This is amazing. I can't even imagine how this would have scared everyone in the room, except for maybe three people, Moses, Aaron, and Pharaoh. Moses and Aaron probably had their hearts strangely warmed with renewed faith. Pharaoh felt his become two degrees colder toward the power of God. It's interesting how this reality of the hardening of Pharaoh's heart is repeated again and again. Why was Pharaoh's heart hardened? We'll look at this more next week, but for today, just let us say the answer is found in verse 13. It happened as the Lord had said. There's the ultimate reason, because this is what God had willed. Okay, man, I love the Old Testament. Isn't this great? Um, the thing is, these stories are not here for our entertainment. They are here that we might know something of the Lord. He is demonstrating his power even to us as his people today as we read this word of old. Let's think together about the theological significance of this passage, because there's more going on here than the tale of two serpents or a war of prophets. Ultimately, this is a battle of the gods. This is the false god of Egypt versus the true god of Israel, and this is a little snapshot of God's... Power over Pharaoh. Or to say it a different way in the language of Genesis 3.15. Over the seed of the serpent. And what this is is a foretaste of what we will see in the plagues. And ultimately as God saves his people and judges his enemies. One Old Testament scholar wrote. This one brief incident embodies the main elements of the ten plagues that follow. God shows his power. His power. And Pharaoh resists the obvious conclusion that he's no match for the God of Israel. He should concede victory to Yahweh, but he does not, which will yield to disastrous circumstances. The word used here is that the serpents of Egypt were swallowed by the serpent of God. That word swallow is a little preview in and of itself of the end of the story where the Red Sea will swallow the enemies of God. The same word is used there. And, of course, in the light of the New Testament, this anticipates the day that is soon coming where our ancient enemy, death itself, will be swallowed up in victory, in the victory that Christ has won for us if you want to see that that's true, 1 Corinthians 15, 54 will show it so. So next week, we're going to pick up where we're leaving off today as we look at the nine at nine of the ten signs and wonders. By the way, they're never called plagues. They're called signs and wonders. I'm still working on the sermon title for that. We'll take a congregational vote at the end of the service. We'll look at that next week. But for now... What I'd like to do is for each of us who are in Christ, the people of God, accounts like this are meant to bolster our faith. So as we think about this demonstration of God's power, we are reminded of God's power, sovereignty, authority over our ancient enemy, Satan himself. We're comforted knowing that the power of Satan is no match for the power of the sovereign God. And so I just wonder, what's the loudest voice in your ear? Is it the truth of God's word? Is it the reality of God's power? Or is it the hiss of our ancient foe, Satan himself? Accusing, assaulting, hissing in your ear. Things like, God will surely not forgive you of that sin. Perhaps asking you if you were really a Christian, you wouldn't feel that way. Or planting this seed, after all that that person's done to you, you cannot forgive them for what they've done. My prayer is that the truth of God's word and the power of his gospel would swallow those lies from the enemy this morning. God's voice would be the loudest voice in our ear. So, what lies are you prone to believe that you need to be swallowed up with the truth? Are you in the season of your life where you're asking God for a sign? A sign of His power? A sign that He can forgive you? Look to the cross, where our sins were paid, not in part, but a whole, nailed to the cross. Look to the empty grave. Which is a down payment on our future resurrection, where we will be gathered up with him, sin and death, Satan, have no more influence over our lives. God will dwell with his people. There is no place we hear the proclamation of God's word and the demonstration of God's power more clearly than in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul says that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. A gospel was a message delivered of a war that had already been won. And so the gospel was spread to inform people of what had already happened. The gospel we proclaim is the message of what God has already done in delivering us as his people through Christ and to any who would hear The gospel is that Jesus Christ, who is the seed of the woman, the promised seed, has in fact crushed the head of our ancient enemy, the seed of the serpent, Satan, sin, and death. And even today, we see this from the word of God alone, that you can be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It is the most miraculous news in the world. And the best part is, it's absolutely true. That was the news that Jesus Christ came to proclaim. That was the news that Paul wrote about, that Augustine proclaimed. That's the thing that held that paper to that door in 1517. As Luther said, let's recover the gospel of grace. And today we stand in those footprints, in that well-worn path as the people of God holding out the good news of the gospel to one another. And I specifically appeal to you, if you have hardened your heart toward the Lord, if you've asked him for a sign, look no further than the completed work of Christ. Everything you need to be made right with God, Jesus has already accomplished. Look to him today and repent of your sin. That is the free grace of God given in Christ. So on this Reformation Day, we finally made it to the moment we've been waiting for. Moses the prophet, boldly standing to face Pharaoh, king of Egypt, speaking faithfully God's word, performing God's first sign, providing for us a wonderful preview of what is to come. As Moses commands Pharaoh, let my people go. Next week, we will cover nine plagues over three chapters, all pointing to one glorious God who is sovereign over all, who is the God who redeems, the one who rules and reigns above all earthly powers. Let's pray to him now. So, Father, we come boldly through the completed work of Jesus Christ, your Son, knowing that we're accepted. Not by any work that we have done, but wholly on what Christ has done in our place. We thank you that you're the God who has spoken to us, revealing who you are, and the God whose power is more than enough to save us, your people, to bring us such a great salvation. Let us live building our lives on the foundation of your truth and empowered by the Holy Spirit. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.